This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we sit down to discuss the first half of The Logic of Political Survival by Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, Alastair Smith, Randolph M. Siverson, and James D. Morrow. This is, this is it. Okay. It's the logic of political survival. Okay, so we're back. We're back just in time for the Posadaist turn. We got UFOs all up and down in the Great White North in Alaska being shot down by the American Air Force, apparently. I think we all knew it would come to this. I think it's funny that, like, there are UFOs, but then there's also, like, the Chinese balloon, which I think in a previous era, that would have been a UFO, too, you know? Like, in a past era, they would have shot it down and just said it was a weather, weather balloon, and then we could all speculate about whether it's aliens or not, which is why I think that whole thing was bullshit, personally. Are, are you team aliens? I'm all, I mean, I, I mean, at this point, you know, like when I was a kid, I used to like watch like, you know, alien movies and be like, oh, God, what if the aliens come? And now I'm like, you know, if the aliens come and just, you know, yeah, we couldn't couldn't be worse than what we got now. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely team aliens. Like, I yeah. feel that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a xenophile. Big xenophile. Like, come, yeah. come visitor. Please share your logical customs. Yeah, because what did they blow up in Independence Day? They blew up like a center of finance. They blew up the White House. You know what I mean? Like it was, we're just know. we're honestly just resentful that we couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. So we we we're back. We decided to revisit the selectorate theory of politics and, and basically dive deep into the logic of political survival, which was the piece that preceded the Dictator's Handbook and was written. More from like a strictly theoretical standpoint where they're trying to prove their case or establish a framework for this entire theory. Theoretical in, in a sense that's a bit alien to Swamp Side Chats in this point, up to this point, and that it's a, a game theoretical, like applied mathematics tax, essentially. Like the kind of rational choice theory that the analytical Marxists might do, but be, they're not analytical Marxists, although um, Adam Perswarski and John Romer come up in the book. Since we read the Dictator's Handbook, there were aspects of its framework that I find myself like defaulting to mentally to think about like certain situations. So for that reason, I wanted to go like deeper into this stuff. But reading this, I found myself, I don't know, a lot more at odds with the piece than even than the previous one. And I had some questions about that, too. I think there's a reason for this. Uh, and we we can talk about it when we dive into how the theory is presented here. Broadly speaking, like it's clear to me now that the dictator's handbook is an elaboration on this theory that did not exist when this was written. This is basically this is the genesis of this theory that would come to be elaborated in later works. But it is useful to really dig in, I think, and look at some of the underlying suppositions of these models they developed. Um, although I think you would be better qualified than me to analyze uh, the models themselves and you know the actual like mathematical logic 
because I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be completely honest with you. I don't know what a logarithm is. Okay, I think I've I think I learned in theory what it was at one point. I do not remember. So, like, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be on you to sort some of that shit out. There's a couple ways to define it. It could be ar- arbitrarily stipulated. Doesn't matter. It th- doesn't matter. Like, um, I think it's weird to do social science with applied math because <clears throat> a basic class critique of science is it's a specialized thing that is you know educated people and there's there is like this like quantitative aspect of like can you do these figures or can you follow a super abstract like um mathematical proof or something and um that in in doing so intensifies the like filter of who the audience is and like the likely class background of the audience Mm. i'm you know i'm not saying poor people can never do math but i know personally even as someone who was like, okay, like off that, like when my emotional life was, or social life was turbulent, it was harder to like do math. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's familiar to anybody. If you're like working class, like, and it's not for your job, like chances are you're doing math in like a gambling context. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and that's like, that's like applied mathematics. And that's a legitimate subject. And it's like perfectly it's a perfectly reasonable way to learn math. And like, yeah, I mean, we, we should, we should write a script, you know, we should be the other kind of podcaster. That's actually secretly like, you know, someone like working on scripts at Hollywood. I've been listening to lots of like podcasts and like so many of them are just like people who are actually writing scripts in their real lives. I mean, the thing is like a lot of people like write scripts. Well, let's get on it. Like, I think, I think fiction is like a, a better way to, put these things out there anyway i mean not a script because here's the thing about a script like one thing i realized in past life when i wanted to be a filmmaker was that like wanting to be a filmmaker is like being like you know i'm gonna get into sports i think i'll do yacht racing i think that's my sport (laughs) it's like do you have a yacht can you get somebody to pay for your yacht (laughs) you may want to try something else uh you know and that's when i picked up a mic and decided to free associate with white people uh and uh here we are Returning to the piece, I, I one thing I want to do real quick, I want to maybe um, go over some key concepts of this overall framework that they present, just to give anyone listening an idea of what we're talking about. So I'm just going to cover a few basic things, because there really are just a few key ideas that are put forward here, and then a lot of it is spent running through different like rational choice models and trying to prove their theory empirically. Okay, so the premise of the author's of this piece is that the and these models is that the primary goal of any leader is to remain in power and this goal will determine their behavior absolutely at least again within this model which we have to, i have to take pains to indicate they are basically creating an abstract model and they talk about the limitations of it and i think one thing that we'll discuss both ways is how this abstraction helps and limits what it is they're trying to do here okay so the components of this of any polity are the selectorate, which is those who have a say in choosing the leader, and the winning coalition. Um, and the winning coalition is basically the one that wins and is the essential supporters of the leader. Without and if they were, if those people were gone, the leader would be finished. There are three essential leaders that decisions have to make. Uh, one, choose a tax rate that generates revenue and influences how hard people work. Two. 
spend the revenue in a manner designed to help remain in power, particularly by sustaining support amongst their winning coalition, and three, provide various mixes of private and public goods. Now, I think the real, the thing I was running into so much reading this is that there's a split in the selectorate that is outlined in the dictator's handbook that is not here, which is in the, in the dictator's handbook, they define a nominal and a real selectorate. So the nominal selector, the nominal selectorate is any person who has some legal say in choosing the leader, whereas the real selectorate is the group that actually chooses the leader. And this split distinction, I think, to me, saves the entire framework. But again, we can talk more about that later. And they don't they don't talk about this in in this piece as well. But there's also the nominal selectors are referred to elsewhere as interchangeables. The influentials are the real selectors, and the essentials are the, the one the those in the winning coalition. There's one other concept here. Um, well, there's a few other concepts. One other that I wrote down within this overall framework that's introduced is one of affinity, which is the idea that there are bonds between le leaders and followers that can be used to anticipate each other's future loyalty. So that's probably there's a few other there's a few other things that you know we could talk about a little bit more um, in the early chapters that lay out this framework for the most part. But that is the general overall picture. Am I missing anything or? Um, no, I'd say that's pretty good. The, what about coalition size? Because coalition size versus uh, size of the selectorate are going to be these like two variables that, you know, they're going to try to create correlative claims with a data set that they kind of like throw together. Um, and, you know, potential causal mechanisms that are logically worked out by all of these mathematical assumptions. Right. Like a big, a big part of this book, at least, and again, just for clarity, we read the first half of it because it's a giant ass tome. <laughs> it's a chonker. We read it. We read it on purpose, which is crazy. Like most people would not want to read this. So most of this book spends a lot of time talking about how winning coalition size relative to the selectorate will heavily influence not only the decision-making of leaders, but even like the economic performance of any given country and a, a few other different variables as well, I believe. The first section of the book is titled Theory of Political Incentives, and the chapter one is titled Reigning in the Prince. I have a couple notes from here. Right, so the, the first part of this, they basically more or less like lay down they kind of outline where the book is going. They lay down a lot of the stuff I just kind of talked about in terms of outlining the overall theory. But one thing I ran into consistently reading this is like they draw this distinction between public and private goods, right? And I understand they have to simplify in order to create an effective mathematical model or whatever. But they basically define private goods as being like pork barrel, pork barrel legislation. This is their words. Pork barrel legislation, patronage or simple theft of the public treasurer. And I think, except for the last one, I feel like these distinctions are kind of tricky. Because within like politics... Like barrel legislation, like, that's how yeah. a lot of, like, public works projects would get done. Right. Or, page, like, one person's pork or one person's patronage is another person's public good. I don't think you can completely disentangle these things as neatly as they, <laughs> as they imply, you know. 
Well, sure. But is that is that fatal to the modeling? Because you could arguably structure a, a pork barrel package to be like, all right, this much private good to these people who get the contract, or you know, this group of people who get who get access to a contract, and then public gets this much good from it happening or whatever. Like you know, since everything's fucking made up because <laughs> sure. it's a model, you know what I mean? Right. You can, you can try to account for it like in a, in a silly abstract way that we're resorting to because reality is too complicated. Like, well, I guess what I'm always, what I'm always looking for and a little suspicious of is, you know, the old George Carlin thing of like, my shit is stuff, but your stuff is shit. You know, like the stuff that's in my house, that's all stuff. I need this stuff. All this, all the shit that's in your house that that you think is stuff, that's all shit. You got to get rid of all this shit, you know. And so, you know, it's very easy. Like later in the book, they talk about like black markets, but it's like black markets exist in pretty much like every society. Maybe now there's a, obviously a quantity scale, and a, there's certain goods in black markets that are different, but nonetheless, <laughs> you know, they, they they exist pretty much everywhere. So do it's you think like, they like? Do you think they would like disagree with that? Because I think one of the central things about the book that I think is honest and good and interesting is it maintains a kind of one of the dark intuitions that is shared more or less between Hobbes and Machiavelli, that people are fucking evil. <laughs> like, and, you know, especially like political action, this is a use, you know, sometimes you have a methodological norm that might not actually be true because I, do I actually believe human beings are evil inherently? No, but like in politics, is that like a useful assumption? Yeah. Like methodologically, it totally is. And that makes rational choice theory and the sociopathic, you know, kind of definition of rationality that emerges out of um, the Rand Corporation and is wholeheartedly adopted by neoclassical kind of utility function kind of stuff in, uh, in economics. Um, like it makes it, you know, uniquely suited material for this kind of analysis because the people are, you know, accumulative sociopaths. Like that is pretty good description of the behavior. And the book makes like provides the intuitional, um, the intuitional model for why politics breeds out other ways of doing things and, you know, outcompetes other ways of doing things, the kinds of things communists would like to see. Right. Well, I, but I also think that there's a reason why this maps so much better onto, again, like the like the dictator's handbook seems to understand this model. It politically maps better onto some systems than others. Like I think, I guess it's more their characterization of democracy that I keep bumping into. That's that's the issue. Their characterization of democracy is like when they actually start spelling out what they mean variable wise. Um, that's actually like the first time I really feel like the book is super dishonest and ideological like where for a, a good chunk of these chapters i'm pretty engaged and i yeah you know, i have my critiques of equilibrium like modeling and whatever but ultimately like it has its place and it they've created like a pretty interesting like way of of trying to think of things and then you kind of see where their political intuitions are at when they're constructing the variables in chapter four. And that's for me where that's the, pro the problems here lie and it gets into the problems 
of applied mathematics or you're dealing with the nexus of, you know, like in formal mathematics, there's absolute certainty with regards to a certain like subset of things. Like if you can secure one thing, you, you, you with absolute certainty secure another thing. And in the social sciences, very little works that way. And so the nexus is always going to be like super dodgy. And I find more than anything, not the attempt to kind of spell things out logically because anything real done by individual people like in a society will eventually break down into individual people doing shit. And that's like, I just don't see anything like really crazy about that. That's fine. Um, and so anything real will be able to be like broken down logically into people doing shit. That's cool. Um, individual people doing shit, maybe for collective reasons, but whatever. Um, but on, 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 I lost my train of thought. Like I, I always get wrapped up in, how much people like don't want you to do game theory as a leftist there's good and the good reasons here i guess are in the like the way that you actually measure things like the united states before ulysses s grant's presidency or something got like a point not or maybe during grant's presidency got like a 0.95 on the <laughs> democracy scale from zero to one where one is most democratic like, yes that just doesn't yes. That, that it's that kind of thing because like before that, I really feel like the book is, um, is pretty solid social science and like pretty good deployment of a theory that I don't, of a type of theory that I kind of don't like. Like I don't like when I actually get to the proof section of this and like I, I compare it to like Euclid's proofs or something like this just seems like a mockery of the brilliant certainty of mathematics. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Applied math gives me weird feelings. Like, I appreciate the attempt, but also like some of the things that people take for granted and, and, and part of it is because this kind of literature, kind of literature that works this way, um, is a lot of sus like neoclassical economic theory. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. It just has its like it's obviously stamped into this book, like yes. and the ways that the political economy works in this book because that's the like the next objectionable thing. I think it's pages one forty and one forty one is where I'm like off. Yeah, shit. But before we get to that, I want to run through a few of like the concepts because there are some other concepts that I think are important um, that I just want to outline real quick. Uh, so in chapter one, one thing they talk about, one thing they spend a lot of time talking about is incentive structures for members of the winning coalition, particularly to defect. And they talk about how the incentive to defect from the incumbent to the challenger. They talk about about like incentive structures between incumbents and challengers, and what influences that. And it really depends on the prospects of being included in the challenger's winning coalition if he should replace the incumbent. They, they spend a lot of time basically working through how the how the challenger basically has to develop a winning coalition and playoff loyalties and things like that. Chapter two lays out the theory as a whole, um, a little more on, on affinity. So in their mathematical model, they basically affinities are only used to essentially to break ties when all the other considerations are considered identical. They talk about the loyalty norm um, for the winning coalition and selectorate. It's basically 
I'm just going to quote really quick here. Uh, the loyalty norm shapes political survival, and hence the actions a leader must take if she, if she wants to remain in power. The smaller W, the ratio of W to S, or winning coalition to selectorate, is, and hence the larger the risk of exclusion from a future coalition, 1 minus W uh, divided by S, the less included any member of the coalition is to put private benefits at risk by giving support to a political opponent of the incumbent. Uh, and here they're basically observing um, how when things shake up like this, whether it's through, you know, just transfer of power within the system or even, um, you know, an overthrow of the regime. Typically, the people who are involved in that are eventually thrown overboard uh, for people who are more directly personally loyal to whoever has been put in power um, and how this essentially shapes uh, shapes the willingness of essential actors to uh to actually defect or switch sides in any given situation um and of course their solution to all this is to have as wide of a selectorate as possible so that these dynamics are minimized um they also crucially in a section talk about what is missing from their theory um so they talk about a few of the built-in assumptions that are i think are important to keep in mind one they go we assume the leader acts as an individual with sole control over policy two we assume that the implementation of policy is never problematic. Three, we assume public goods are not normal goods. This assumption places questions of ideological competition, which are central to spatial models of electoral competition, outside of our model. And four, we assume that all members of our groups are identical except for their affinities for each other. And I mean, you know, can we think of any Marxist class critiques of this, of, of bourgeois abstraction and, you know, class? Right. I mean... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another area where this whole thing uh, is ki kind of a problem, and I, I'll, ex I'll explain why later. But and see. I, I would, I would add though, like not fatally so. It's not like hard for me to imagine like building a little like class variable into this, and you know, trying to represent different like models of like class and political reality and in this kind of shit. Like, you know, it's something you could do. Something mm -hmm. like one way you can modify this model to be a little more useful or interesting. Okay, so and just one more thing I want to clear through. So in their in chapter three, a model of a selectorate theory. One thing they talk they talk about they, they talk a lot about allocation of revenues. So it goes the the incumbent's optimal choice over the allocation of revenues involves two calculations: how much must be spent on the winning coalition in total, and of the amount spent, how much should go to private and public goods. We talked a lot about this on the dictator's handbook, and but I do think like. Where this actually works best is figuring out is basically as like a, a model for how political actors specifically will make choices and think like that's I guess the things I often found myself bumping into were ha when they tried to broaden this into into almost a theory of political science as a whole, because for any any political actor is going to have, yes, the overall people that will have a say and then they will have a group of people who they consider uh, correctly or incorrectly to be essential for their support. And oftentimes they lose support when it turns out their uh, essentials aren't as essential as they thought, right? So as a framework for that, I think that's where this is strongest, but um, maybe generalizing it to like a theory of uh, the efficacy of democracy, even, if, even though I don't necessarily disagree with their premises or conclusions in some respects. I think that's where it, I keep bumping into it. That's part of their like motivation for writing to begin with is because 
you know, once you really start getting deep into like utilitarian calculus, you can convince yourself of some real crazy things. And I don't really think it's a coincidence that a bunch of neo-reactionaries become anti-democrats because I don't know through, if you stipulate the right, like utility calculus models, maybe it's just better if, you know, you just have like a really wise king that takes over things. <laughs> and so that what they're trying to do here is make the Machiavellian Republican argument against a Hobbesian monarchist ar argument. And that like, that expanding the, I think what they're specifically hung up on uh, is not the expansion of the selectorate, like by itself, but also with the expansion of the, with the variable W for a winning coalition, the size that you need individual, I guess, representatives to like actually create the coalition that will allow you to govern because the more, like the bigger that that is, the more that you have to like win people over, like a lot more people over and the less loyal people will be to you mm -hmm. <laughs> basically. Um, cause you have to please more people and yeah, they just like that or, you know, no, like what? you wonder, like, that's not a consequence of the model. That's an intuition that somebody starts with and is trying to flesh out and justify with a rationalistic framework, which that is sort of an ideological process, but it's also something that any, any rational person would do um, when trying to model something because you can't really model things without conceptual intuitions. So right. there's ideology baked in here, but also like some of this is genuinely scientifically interesting and paired with historical examples of the, of their phenomenon of the phenomena that they're interested in so that they, and I, I really don't know how much violence they're doing to these historical examples. I'm sure there are good surveys of <laughs> the abuse of history by, you know, game theoretic, like mm -hmm. uh, psycho historians. Um, yeah. I, I have some thoughts about that when we get to it. Yeah. But... <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, look, you know, I read Herodotus and, you know, I saw 300. So I'm, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm basically ready to, weigh yeah. in on his, you know, historical accuracy yeah it's raining man um okay so yeah okay so where a lot of this like where a lot of this neoclassical like economic shit comes in like it's in chapter four so institutions for kleptocracy or growth right which sounds like it could be the title of like i don't know some fucking uh i don't know chicago school paper or something okay they make in it they make statements like this um quote when the tax rate is high and residents anticipate any surplus they make will be expropriated, they choose not to engage in productive enterprise, preferring leisure activities instead. Okay, so again, as like an abstract statement, sure. You know what I mean? Like if, if you say we're going to take all the extra grain, you're probably not going to grow any extra grain or you're going to try and hide it or whatever. But when you like abstract away class and measure tax rates as if they're all flat taxes, you're kind of missing something important about what the actual empirical data on this stuff says like the whole, like the whole neoliberal conservative project was like convince people that allowing rich people to accrue and hoard money and resources was actually a public good. And one of the legacies of neoclassical economics that ideologically reflects this agenda is the consistent neoclassical argument that there's no difference in types of assets. So that capital and labor can just be, or even like rent, 
rent rental assets can all be usefully modeled as exactly the same thing all the time. So this model, for instance, everybody has the uh, leisure capacity L, and then um, if you, which is I think a, a decimal between zero and one, and then for something that they call labor, but what they really mean is productive activity. It's one minus L. So, you know, just like the, you know, the opposite, like percentage. Which, by the way, just as an aside, that doesn't sound that bad to me. Like, you tell me we raise taxes, we all get the chill. You know what I mean? Like, like that, that, sounds, that sounds pretty good to me. Sorry. Uh, but, <laughs> but the, uh, but right, like it, it's, a, it's, abs it's abstracting away from the difference between labor and capital. Like, period. That's the, I don't know, that's, that's the central, like, one of the central things in political economy that's, like, supposed to be important. And that, you know, the difference between like, I don't know, just think about the difference between risk with capital and risk with labor power. Like, and when you're, you know, a, like a, a risk on the job versus a risky investment, you know, I think the differences are rather obvious. And that's maybe where there's a genuine violence of abstraction and neoclassical economics and such. However, like purely on a mathematical level, and this is, you know, where economists have a, a level of genuine evil when it comes to mathematics that I'm impressed by. They're the most abusive of something I think is beautiful and cool. Um, is that like, <clears throat> you know, you could mathematically abstract away from those things if you don't think they're important. I don't understand how you do that for a political model. And the other thing that kind of gets me is, yeah, I don't know. When we get into the democracy score and you, I just think about like what universality means in mathematics and how much that drives my sort of communist humanism or whatever, and how, how crazy it is to give the democracy score of 0.95 to the United States, like in the pre-civil war. <laughs> well, it was, wait, is, is this during Grant or before Grant? Pre-civil war funding. America scores a 0.95 on the democracy indicator and a 0.75 on coalition size on a zero to one scale. So they well, get a 75. I think it's during Grant though. So it, like it's. I thought it, they said pre, I could be wrong. Is, I thought they said pre-Civil pre War. War. I think like, they said okay. pre-Civil War. They also right. say for Grant too, but that's not the, that's not the data point I wrote down. Okay. Um, All right. But well, regardless, well, even, even then, you regardless. Still, women's, women's like, women still can't, can't vote. vote. Women that's can't like half vote. the population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, that's, and so. You know, the universal kind of statement in mathematics, you know, should be consistently kind of, I don't know, fucking applied with citizenship and democracy. So that that's like political holes like that, I think, are just actually just wrong. Like that's I like there's a lot of times in Swampside chats that I've told you about things that are, have an ideological functional value, but are also true. But here I have the pleasure of saying, I really think this is fucking just wrong on a scientific or mathematical or whatever level. Like, you just can't make that assumption. That's crazy if half the population is excluded, let alone, you know, Native Americans, which are part of the universal thing. Like, well, just, and that, that's this is right. Well, this is where you see that the, they're basically because I thought, OK, up until this point, I thought, OK. Maybe democracy is the the one on the <laughs> democracy scale is like an average of like total universal engagement, total universal like suffrage, literal complete universal suffrage of everyone. No, a one is basically like the Clinton era. 
Like, right? Yeah. And so, and they also do some weird thing where they talk about like, you can see this in another place where they go, okay, the relative sizes of, of the winning coalition and selectorate matter, but the total magnitude of the winning coalition sometimes also matters taking population size into account. We use a logarithm under the supposition that there is a marginally decreasing impact of each added individual in a country as the total population of the country increases. So basically, the select the if I read that correctly, like the size of, of the winning coalition can be smaller relative to the population once you reach like a certain point in the population size, which again seems almost modeled to make the United States like the normative example of a democracy, right? Well, although, like, okay, so there's these two historical, like, things that they're weighing in on. There's uh, Hobbes versus Machiavelli, which we talked about a little bit, on, uh, you know, monarchy versus Republican, you know, liberty or whatever. And then there's, um, uh, there's the Baron Montesquieu, who prefers a small republic as the guarantor of political freedom, versus James Madison, which thinks you know, who, who thinks that you can kind of structure a bigger one. Uh, and the, the Federalist Papers in general, like uh, Hamilton, you know, the musical guy, and, uh, and John Jay, and, you know, the authors of the Federalist Papers are making this case essentially against Montesquieu. And, but a lot of this book actually provides ammo for Montesquieu over the Federalist. Like, I'd say overall because of the, the ways that, like, once you get to a certain size, uh, you just, I, I don't know if I'm speaking strictly, but I think you, you essentially just hit a spiral of, um, so, like, in this model, let's, let's just say, like, what happens when the selectorate gets, like, to a certain size? Is it the select, when the selectorate gets to a certain size that there's the transfer? Um, or is it when the uh, winning coalition, I think, it's the winning coalition, when the winning coalition gets to a certain size, instead of, you know, private goods for your political buddies, public goods uh, for everyone in the polity become, you know, more rational, more rational to spend your, like, resources on. Um, and so expanding that winning coalition number, that's a good thing. That makes things more, like, public-minded and less, like, kleptocratic or, you know, having the potential towards theft. Um, but if your S grows, like, and you just have more and more and more and more people in your polity, like, eventually your ability to, like, expand the, the winning coalition size and create that effect gets offset by the sheer size of the polity or something. Does, is this, okay. does this sound familiar? Like, because, like, I think this is the... Montesquieu argument that kind of cuts against America like a little bit and and kind of ex tries to explain why there's like low levels of like public goods even the in America <laughs> um, right. or, or or something maybe I'm like they seem to argue that like lower taxes themselves are a public good and but they also say later that the federal structure of the United States is a a very effective mitigation of this problem. Which uh, I'll need to see yeah. some citations on that. Um, yeah, that cuts in the Federalist uh, Madison direction in that yeah. in that in that debate. Like, yeah, and I mean, like honestly, like there there is some like mitigation 
of this problem. There's there's a reason for the political stability of the United States, but like, I don't know. Like the United States and its longevity gives me more pessimism than optimism about Republican liberty. <laughs> like, uh, and its ability to, you know, safeguard itself and, you know, like re replenish, you know, like, uh, and provide like safe, like kind of political expression for, you know, minority rights and stuff, like given where things are going. So they, they spent a lot of time basically arguing that expanding selectorate size in a country will meaningfully contribute to economic growth. Also, one thing that they do is they they don't actually measure personal leisure directly, although they make a kind of like vaguely like racist comment about how like Jamaicans seem lazy or something like that. And then like but they so they basically um, they use consumption as a proxy for leisure in their measurements. They also note that um since collecting taxes costs money, the macro data can be skewed because some countries might not have enough money to just like collect taxes. But one thing that is weird is that in their so in their model, they argue that presidential systems are less prone to corruption than parliamentary systems since they require a larger winning coalition. You know, and I think this is like an area where I think the nominal and real selectorate distinction, I think maybe saves this framework for me. Because this idea is basically predicated on the idea that the elections themselves are a real contest that are reflective of civic society. If, if that's true, yeah, okay, maybe in, the, uh, in a model like a presidential system would be like that. But that's not always like the reality. Um, and there's another weird thing too where they talk about how – and this is earlier in the book – how within their model, in principle, presidential systems ought to produce more public goods for a polity than parliamentary systems – but the empirical data doesn't even necessarily back that. And they just kind of gloss over that and move on. I thought that was very, that was very strange. It's, it's a pretty mammoth, like, achievement to try to do something like this. So, like, I'm definitely, there's a bunch of shit in this book that pisses me off. But, like, it bothers me because there's, someone, like, really tried to think through politics and like, the history of humanity in a really abstract way. <laughs> Well, and it is, again, it is useful in examining the incentive structures, especially for dictators, you know, and how basically the difference between a government that is just explicitly raiding a country for resources and one that is trying to develop a generalized, independent, like, engine of economic growth um, that they don't necessarily get to pilfer from in the same way that, because, you know, the, the, the overall mass of wealth in the country is greater but their share of it is much smaller as opposed to just something like purely abstracted, um, extractive where you might get it from something like a tin, you know, classical tin pot dictatorship. But the problem is, is that a lot of this undercuts a lot of their neoclassical economic assumptions. Like they talk about how uh, trade is an unequivocal good uh, in any society. But that ignores like comparative – that ignores the fact that in order to have a – robust economy and a polity that is actually and civil society that is like diverse enough to have a real selectorate you have to have some level of diversified industry and oftentimes you can only accomplish that through controlling your currency and through controlling imports and exports which has created the historical justification for the one-party state and for right. you know closing down liberal governance because you have to maintain control over the economy which you know there, there, there is a like point of diminishing returns. Like um, when you get to a certain 
like point in industrialization or something. But like as a as a development strategy, you know, it, it is the model. Like at some point, like, you know, you might phase it out like in the like South Korean model. But um but yeah, you, you, you might have yeah, like this the neoclassical economics literature has abstractions that make stuff like that, you know. It's it's like another like when when people are thinking about you know ideology and mathematics and uh the way science and like stem bro like bullshit and like you know political wonk nerd like that all like comes to a head in neoclassical economics methodologically i guess no one's walking that's listening to this podcast is walking in there without suspicions but um but they are like well-founded suspicions you're not just being like a paranoid marxist there's just some not like not obviously scientifically defensible moves that are kind of the regular like and you know we're, we're always like kind of building our conceptual understanding of things into our metrics or whatever but so okay i want to talk a little bit about chapter five so in chapter five they do something kind of weird so they they basically define so they bring up ancient sparta right <laughs> And they offer this example to demonstrate their point about the relationship between selectorate size and, I guess, state prosperity in the examples of Sparta. But their own example, I think, actually undercuts their models a little bit. Um, let me explain, because like I said, I talked about this earlier. Like The big problem that I see here is that if you abstract class out of this framework, there are only state agents in power the winning coalition, the selectorate, and then a generalized citizenry that is outside of this framework. In their Sparta example from Chapter 5, they basically talk about how the size of the selectorate in the Spartiate during the Peloponnesian War was much larger than it was after the Battle of Lucretia of Leocatra? Leocatra? I can't pronounce Greek shit. 70 years later. And the way they frame this in their example... They seem to apply a clear coalition between selectorate size and prosperity for the Spartan city-state. Then in subsequent paragraphs, they themselves note how military successes following the Peloponnesian War brought in new wealth that then shifted the balance of class within the Spartiate, forcing poor members to drop out, and creating all these foreign military commanders who began raiding and then developing these like crony relationships with all these people that they then brought back into the Spartan polity with them, right? And so within their now the way they frame it rhetorically, they make it sound like, well, once the once the cult, once the selectorate size was down, uh, the, it all went to shit. But if chronologically, the shift in class relations is what drove all these dynamics, and the reduction in the selectorate was the outcome of an already existing social practice that crystallized in changes in the state structure, right? So, yes, they can empirically demonstrate that there's some kind of correlation between selectorate size and, you know, like, wealth and, and like, you know, health, the health of the state or whatever. But, you know, because the state is the outcome of class relationships... You have to understand those to really understand what's going on and have, I think, like a genuinely effective model outside of 
uh, rational choice framework for understanding political actors. Or inside a rational choice framework for understanding political actors. What if there were, you know, two types of productive asset that you could have? Labor and capital. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I'm just spitballing here. Like, you just have to change a few equations. Like, it's not that big a deal. Like, it's kind of why when people talk about, like, bourgeois reason or, like, bourgeois science, they're sometimes a little too totality-oriented and not detail-oriented enough. Well, and the thing is, too, it's like, I don't even... I basically consider the idea that more democracy basically means more benefit for everyone overall. Like, I basically consider that to be axiomatic. But for some reason, something about their... I think because... Probably because their baseline for democracy is what already exists. <laughs> Leads mm-hmm. me to be very right. suspicious of, of their entire, like, a, a approach to demonstrating uh, demonstrating this. Yeah, and... and... Yeah, it's like not even that. I think it's like you know empiricist or something. I think it, they just like did rationalism wrong. Like they constructed the wrong intuition into like their math. But like I, I guess they did you know model their intuition. I just think they're in- <laughs> well, you know, like I just think I don't know how you defend this. Uh, it's nothing that people like. Do- I don't know. I didn't see in the book any rationale for why you would, you know, assign that score. Like, and I'm hung up on this detail because I think it just... It it it's a, it doesn't look right. Well, it just perfectly encapsulates the problem. That And maybe I'm, like, hyper-focusing on a specific detail, but there's a number of examples that, I, you know, I could give that, like, have this kind of class content. It's just the, the most obvious one because in mathematical logic, there's a universal quantifier and when you say, like, the universal, you know what I mean? You mean it. Like, it's like every possible thing. Well, and there's also this weird example with, like, the King Leopold shit. I kinda, they're like, well, you... Kinda, like, that, that, is, that is, like, an interesting story. Like, King... Yeah, like, but they're, they're like, well, you see, the selectorate size uh, in, in, in Belgium was big, and it was small <laughs> in, in Africa. Yeah. And it's like... <laughs> And that's why he was able to do this there and not there. It's like, okay, but that's, you know, that's not the only, that's not the only reason. <laughs> well, that does, that didn't explain why the selectorate was like one person in the Congo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's not giving you like the most salient part to latch on to. Yeah, it's like, could you maybe found like a less offensive example? Like, you know, that's being like, well, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not even going to say anything that's similarly offensive, but you, you can fucking imagine. Um, I, I, th- yeah. I think basically like, like, again, public private goods, like what they're doing there is kind of trying to turn into so-called universal terms, you know, for, for, for everybody that they're actually letting in the set, like. You're the right demographic to be let in the set of everyone. <laughs> right. You know, the polity. Um, well, I mean, but I will say, like, I, I actually do like this overall framework, like the main components of it. But I do really I do really feel that the creating that thing they did later where they added this nominal real split within the selectorate, mm-hmm. I think, is a, a useful nod to the actual dynamics in, like, you know, really existing democracy. Right. Really existing democracy um, in uh, the Soviet Union, and in and trying to understand 
political institutions that have the democratic garnish, but at the end of the day, you know, like, the say in the society is between, like, a few people. Like, right. The, like, people who really make the decisions, not that many people. Like, and, like, what's the, what's the salient, like, number in that situation? Yeah, now that's harder to model from, from macro, uh, from macro data, because, you know, uh, you know, backroom deals, are, that's all, that's off the books, you know, for a reason. Um, yeah, it's a lot, it's like a laudable thing to try. Like, it's a crazy, it's a crazy huge, like, accomplishment. You know, and there's stuff I like about it. I mean, I've been, yeah. I, I guess I've been talking about the things I bump into, because that's where the friction is, and that's what's interesting. All right. Well, we're halfway through this thing. I'm yeah. curious to see where the rest of this goes. Look, I might be, like, pretty black-pilled in terms of, you know, certain like you know political horizons that like i want to happen <laughs> but i you know if there's any like value in like suffering through uh just being wrong about stuff that you hope is true uh, just trying to develop a systematic understanding of something is, is never i don't know i don't know i think i think it's like something you can recover even out of a disappointing political experience and it's something that helps me with all the you know interpersonal like weird media beef stuff and like uh like and like weird proprietarian disputes between media figures that like i don't know it kind of helps me deal with betrayal on a certain level it to get this like abstract rationalistic understanding well i i do think you know um a genuinely like socialist or communist politics you have to go to like again the idea is basically you want to expand the franchise, you want to expand the selectorate, but you also want to create a new winning coalition. And you're not going to create it out of the stuff that already exists, right? You're going to basically create it outside and against that. Um, and so to actually do, like in communist politics, you basically have to, you have to find a way to basically go against the fundamental premises of this, which is that the point is the point of being a political actor is to basically hold gain and retain power. Right. So you, you cannot get swept up in that because that will shape your behavior very right. lawfully. And th that's something I think that applied mathematics and social science actually has worked out like, and, and I don't think that that's that controversial outside of our circles. And, uh, and it was because, of our, I don't know, there is, you know, some noble hopes wrapped up into it. But there was a certain level of denial of the literature as it was because it was sort of, you know, inconvenient and blackpilling to think that that could be the case. But also I think there was a layer of historical skepticism because of all the Cold War social science that nakedly had ideological biases that, you know, made me at least want to go reinvent the wheel and figure it out myself. <laughs> but i yeah but i do think what is useful about this it it is it is clarifying because it's like okay like any to the extent that there is engagement in politics it has to be about something more than just like winning office like winning office would almost be a byproduct of what you're actually trying to do right and yeah. so it would also alter the the relationship that people have towards electoralism right you, you don't have to do stand culture for these figures you have and you have to have a different expectation 
a different set of expectations for any politician that you choose to support who claims to be working towards socialism. Yeah, I think I think it pretty clearly lays out where how bourgeois democracy or bourgeois politics or bourgeois republic or what is structurally bourgeois about democratic institutions as we understand them and how the and, and the reason the specific reasons that the the old kind of marxist view of class and party that each class has its party you know um why that's very wrong and why that there's something about the structure of politics that is bourgeois and that is bound to not represent the proletarian interests like it, and how it's baked in structurally like it helps make sense of it it does like uh even if it, it's not serving class politics at all <laughs> like even if that's something we're you know bringing to the table um kind of against the spirit of some of, of a lot of the <laughs> theory this is drawing upon but you know it's okay start not from you know old uh, good things but from new bad ones that's it for this time if you'd like to support the show uh, you can hit up, our, hit up our Patreon if you want to get a hold of us uh, email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com or hit up our socials um, and yeah, that's it. So, until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.